It's four o'clock on Tuesday and it means two hours of current affairs with Joan Bartlett. Some of the current affairs you won't hear on mainstream media. For example, the push by France for deep sea mining in the Pacific. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan has been following that story. Peace activist Kathy Kelly will talk about the efforts to get young peace activists out of danger in Afghanistan. More reactions to the 280-page report by Amnesty International, highlighting the ongoing systematic oppressive domination of Palestinians by Israel and finding the crimes against humanity fit the international legal definition of apartheid. I'll be speaking with Bishop George Browning, who's the president of APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. The second and final part of the interview with activist and PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lakakis with the history of Central American country Honduras. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another week. A week, Jane, listener, when caring employers were dancing in the streets, corks popping, whooping it up, as they celebrated the oh-so-sensible decision by their High Court honours that caring employers could employ people without employing people. Every worker in the country no longer a worker, but a one-person contractor who supplies her his labour to the caring employer who is not the caring employer, but for whom the caring employer who is not determines the wages and conditions the caring employer who is not will pay and provide for the supply of that contractor who is not an employee's labour. Showing the wisdom and down-to-worth relationship with reality, the common touch of their High Court honours, who pointed out the contract between the caring employer who is not and the, say, 15-year-old individual contractor signing that contract on such equal terms is a contract, not a friendship, which was also so informative, so surprising, so disappointing, because lazy avaricious workers have always seen their caring employer as a friend. But now discover not only is it not a friend, but also not a caring employer. You're going to laugh at this, listener, but some commentators have suggested this flood of wisdom from the bench will lead to caring employers who are not slashing wages and conditions, slashing safety standards, as if caring employers are not caring when we all know that whenever anything that could upset the delicate flower that is the economy, and there are so many, many things that could upset the delicate flower, like well, say a proposed wage rise, or worse, a real wage rise, the caring employer's only concern is for the workers. This will cost jobs, which shows just how much they care for their lazy, avaricious workers who will now not be their lazy, avaricious workers, and sadly, as their honours ruled, will not be their friends. And some cynics, certainly not the week that was, might say when it comes to caring employers the term their honours is appropriate, spot on. Just when we thought Barnacle couldn't get any more stupid, we discovered he sent a text to someone he barely knew that Big Supremo Scuttlebin Moore Lash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, was a hypocrite and a liar who earnestly rearranges the truth to a lie. My observations, and that is over a long time, and thought there was no chance it just might become public. Still, he rounded out a good week for Scummo after it was also leaked that Scummo's great mate Gladys had called him horrible, horrible, horrible 
and a cabinet minister added to the praise with a fraud and a psycho, and Barnacle, showing he'd learned nothing from believing the text message would never see the light of, urged the cabinet minister to out yourself and explain. Mistake, Barnacle. Big, big mistake. Imagine it. Uh, could you explain what you meant, calling Scummo horrible, 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 a fraud and a psycho? Uh, certainly, I, I meant Scummo is a horrible, horrible, horrible fraud and a psycho. Then again, maybe Barnacle, in his Machiavellian way, was setting a trap for his now so-close mate, the liar and the hypocrite. He did say his assessment of Scummo was historical. Whatever that meant, last week is now history if we think about it. Perhaps he meant hysterical. But then again, he did say observations over a long time. Not that we're suggesting Barnacle keeps contradicting himself in any way. Scummo, as the true loves the dear baby Jesus Christian that he is, says he forgives them all. Which proves he's not a liar. Even if he can't forgive all those no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people he has kept locked up for about a decade for the heinous crime of seeking asylum and refuge from war and persecution, from true blue Aussies invading their country, for instance. That Christian love was evident in his response to the 182-page Amnesty International report accusing Zion of apartheid in its maltreatment of the Palestinian non-people in the non-people's land. No country is perfect, Scamo dismissed the maltreatment, restating Troubler was his close, close, close relationship with Zion, which would not be affected by some report from a body the Zion lobby in Troubler was, he told us angrily, has been taken over by ideological extremists. And Scamo agreed, displaying his love thy neighbour concern for the non-people. A local Zion lobbyist said the report itself was... A crime, a crime, he said, against truth and international law, leaving satire sadly yet again with nothing to say. On the positive side, Scummo was backed up in his defence of Zion by the Socialist Party, another close, close friend of Zion, its spokesperson Penny Left Wing most upset at the use of the word apartheid. Then again, love thy neighbour, epitome of Christian love, horrible, 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 lying, hypocrite, psycho, fraud, scummo, might for once have been honestly self-critical in declaring no country is perfect, a perfect example. Although to be fair, he probably does believe one country is perfect. Our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world which in protecting its perfection in protecting the whole world has been forced to escalate its already huge train killer build-up on the evil, evil, evil Russian border because evil Russia gets a bit upset about the US of NATO build-up on its borders and poses a threat to world peace as the US of announced it had irrefutable intelligence. Intelligence, we use that word pretty loosely, irrefutable evidence, evil Russia planned an imminent invasion. Uh, is that the same intelligence which proved irrefutably evil Iraq was bristling with weapons of mass destruction, hundreds of nuclear weapons and, and planned to invade the whole world? Absolutely. And we can guarantee it is just as reliable. You better believe it. 
In fairness, we can understand the weapons of mass destruction mistake because the then Secretary for War and Destruction, Donald Rumsfeld, the Arabs, sold them heaps of them. Turns out he didn't know what he didn't know he knew what he didn't know he knew he didn't know. The weak that was has irrefutable intelligence information. Evil Russia is apparently concerned about the weapons of mass destruction with which the US of is bristling and is considering placing trained killers and trained killer weapons of on both the US of's Canadian and Mexican borders. We have irrefutable evidence a US of invasion of Canada and Mexico is imminent. And just a bit of bad luck last week, a US of train killer jet stopped up its landing on a train killer aircraft carrier and crashed into the briny. Bad luck, because the US of was concerned the evil Chinese might seize the wreck and uncover some US of secrets, which are, of course, critical in the US of's role to protect the whole world. Because it turned out the train killers were in Chinese territorial waters. Interesting that, because the US of tells us it is simply exercising its right to sail in non-Chinese territorial waters, international waters. But as ScoMo knows, it is the one country that is perfect. Like ScoMo, it would never, never tell a lie. So it must have inadvertently sailed into evil Chinese territory. Evil China, as the Minister for Being Offensive and Trained Killing Constable Peter Duffer has warned us, based on equally irrefutable intelligence, Constable Duffer intelligence, okay, okay, for the sake of argument, irrefutable that Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony All-Being Uzi, is a puppet being manipulated from Beijing. The Chinese Communist Party, as Pete keeps repeating, Communist Party running a 100% capitalist economy. Thank goodness for Constable Duffer that we've been warned. And, and it's interesting that capitalist China is a bigger threat to our capitalist values, which are our great true blue Aussie values, than was communist China. Not that that saved Vietnam from our invasion on the coattails of, and speaking of hyperbole, and we're going to come back to hyperbole, and the itch to utilise all those products of the merchants of death, the secretary of the US of World State, Anthony Not Blinken First, landed in True Blue Aussie and told us this was the most critical time in our relationship ever, ever. It is imperative True Blue Aussie must buy trillions of dollars more peace-loving products from our U.S. of merchants of death. Death. As we have to learn with it, with it let it rip, R.I.P. of course, for rest in peace, continued to rip, New South Wales Supremo Dom Parrot Talk celebrated thousands of victims dying of it or catching it or being forced to isolate because of it, hospitals and health workers straining under the weight of it by declaring, Our plan is working. We said there'd be lots more death and disease, and we were spot on. Yes, it must do apologists half the world of good when he, he in this case, gets it so right. On that, notice an item about COVID from the US of, the location was the Henry Ford Health Center, which I thought interesting given the contribution all those Henry Ford exhaust pipes have made to world health. Now, as I said, politicians also, of course, specialise in hyperbole. Almost anything that happens is the worst ever, the best ever, the most disgraceful ever. That is the most disgraceful comment ever made in this house. 
We hear it all the time. And this week, Anthony Albing, he maintained the tradition describing aged care as a policy failure the like of which this country has never seen before. Well, yeah, technically the likes of which in this case has never been seen, but, but I would have thought that over the journey there's been a few policy failures that would have to be right up there. All those train killer invasions on the coattails of, for instance, um, spring time. But, but don't they hyperbole? As issues to do with equality in addressing sexual violence took the stage of the National Press Club, one of the prime examples of why we need more women in politics, Attorney General Michaelia Kosh, the workers, announced that the promise before the last election to introduce a national anti-corruption body could not sadly, sadly be met because there wasn't enough time now before the next election, which raises a few pretty obvious questions, but it was more important important to fulfill another really urgent promise from three years ago, giving religion the right to discriminate against those it disagrees with or who disagree with it, including children who don't conform to its God-given awareness about a man and a woman. So after politicians wasted a whole night talking about it, Michaela and Scummo and the team decided there wasn't enough time left for that either after all, because too many people wanted to make it difficult for people of faith, in good faith, to make children's lives a misery. That'll have to wait. Because finally, Scummo said the most pressing legislation now before the election was a bill banning the National Press Club. After all, he had given an apology with all the sincerity with which we've come to recognise, and within 24 hours, two young upstart women had his love thy neighbour and the dear baby Jesus, horrible, horrible, lying, hypocrite, psycho, fraud reputation, in tatters. There's nothing tame about her. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Kevin Healy. And don't forget Kevin and friends on 3CR tomorrow morning. 9 o'clock for City Limits. Join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the Decade Zero and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Let's bounce back with sustainability in 2022. Head to slf.org.au for the full details. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hello 3CR listeners, I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles, well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. 
So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. This program for 2022 with author, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And Nick, we're beginning with a topic which I've been covering on this program for a number of years, the push for deep sea mining and the campaigns to prevent what could be a disaster in the oceans of the world. Today, the focus is on the push from France. Is this new or has it been in the pipeline for a number of years? For many years, the French government has been promoting uh, the oceans, looking at uh, the exploration uh, and indeed exploitation of ocean resources. And in recent times, under French President Emmanuel Macron, that interest in oceans policy has ramped up. You know, it was more than a decade ago that France set up an interministerial committee on the oceans and appointed a minister you know, responsible for oceans policy. They've long had research organisations like IFREMIR, which is a state-owned uh, agency uh, responsible for oceans research. But there's really an attempt to try and develop a, a whole-of-government response, to use the jargon, coordinating the strategic and military aspects of oceans policy and maritime policy with uh, economic, commercial, as well as environmental aspects of the oceans. Just this month, um, uh, between the, uh, the 8th and 11th of February, France hosted a, a major One Ocean Summit in Brest, which is a port city uh, on the Atlantic coast of France. What came out of that? Well, there was a lot of talk about oceans management and governance, whether the law of the sea can be expanded. There's a lot of talk about environmental pollution, particularly issues related to uh, plastics pollution in the ocean, about reef ecology and ocean ecology related obviously to climate change, given the warming of the oceans and acidification of the oceans, and uh, broader questions about biodiversity. But I think that focus on environmental issues underplays the core concern that France has about pushing uh, a commercial and economic agenda. And this has been very clear from French President Macron. Last October he announced a new uh, 2030 research agenda. So over the next eight to 10 years, France is proposing to spend 2 billion euros, quite a significant amount of money, on research, both for space, outer space, and for the oceans. You know, this is a sort of vision of the final frontier, and indeed the growing competition between major powers over these frontier areas moving mining and uh, uh, resource exploitation from uh, terrestrial locations to the space and to the oceans. Uh, You know, there's a lot of talk about mining asteroids, for example, uh, in the United States and China. uh, Other countries have major outer space uh, programs. And France long has uh, had its own independent space capacity. It launches uh, rockets from uh, Kourou uh, in Guyane in uh, South America through the Ariane Space Program. But the oceans are this new frontier as well, and France is in a a significant situation. Under the law of the sea, countries are allowed to uh, manage, uh, protect, uh, and exploit 
the resources of 200 nautical miles around their territory. And in metropolitan France, in Europe, uh, they have about 330,000 square kilometres of uh, exclusive economic zone. These are the zones that countries have the right to, uh, uh, to control within 200 nautical miles of, of, of their landfall. But France's um, enormous network, as we've talked about many times in this program, of overseas colonies. Um, it has dependencies in every ocean of the world, in the Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, and particularly in the Pacific. And if you add on the exclusive economic zones of the, uh, the overseas colonies, France moves up to number two in the world in terms of its maritime zones. It has 11 million square kilometres of EEZ. So it goes from 330,000 to 11 million square kilometres of maritime zones. And 7 million of those are in the Pacific. Around 5 million uh, square kilometres in uh, French Polynesia in the Eastern Pacific. Another 1.3 million around New Caledonia and so on. So the Pacific is pretty central to France's interest in oceans policy. President Macron is, is uh, quite open about this. When he launched this uh, 2030 research program last October, he said that to prepare France for 2030, research must be accelerated. If we now start to work in depth, we can have wild dreams about the sea by 2030. We must go much further and stronger. So they're putting literally hundreds of millions of dollars into research agendas uh, in the Pacific. A lot of that, as I say, is on sustainability issues, but uh, particularly there's an interest in the uh, exploration in the deep sea for oil and gas, particularly off the coast of New Caledonia, in the deep waters between Queensland and New Caledonia, and in uh, deep sea mining and the uh, search for uh, nodules of precious metals uh, manganese, cobalt and other materials that can be found in nodules on the ocean floor and also rare earths that are often found in the deep ocean. And there's a growing international competition to tap into these mineral and uh, rare earth resources in the oceans as well as on land and uh, France wants to be part of that chase. You'd think that they'd mucked up the earth enough without having to go into the oceans, wouldn't you? Well, that's where there's a lot of gloss on uh, on this question, and and this was seen at the One Ocean Summit in Brest uh, just uh, uh, a week or so ago, where there was a major focus on uh, environmental concerns around sustainability, the um, illegal, unreported, and unregulated uh, fishing, the plunder of uh, resources like tuna. About seventy percent of the world's tuna comes from the Western and Central Pacific. There's a lot of talk about plastics, and it's a serious problem. The uh, enormous uh, uh, dumping of plastics into the ocean, which breaks down, can get into the food chain uh, through the ingestion of these microparticles of plastics, uh, which uh, take uh, you know years, decades to break down, and that gets into the food chain. Um, so these are really serious concerns, and at one level it's great that France is putting resources into this area. But when it comes to this... Uh, question about environmental protection, there are areas like the control of strategic metals and like seabed mining where France is refusing to step up in the way that they claim to be stepping up around the environment. Um, last year, for example, the IUCN, the International Union on Conservation and Nature Global Network, held their World Conservation Congress 
and France hosted it in Marseille, the uh, Mediterranean uh, city uh, uh, in France. And uh, one of the big questions was a debate around uh, seabed mining. And a resolution was put forward calling for a moratorium on deep seabed mining. And that was adopted by 81 governments or government agencies. But France, even though it was hosting the IUCN Congress, abstained from that resolution. And you see other measures where France is ramping up this work. Uh, the French Senate, French National Senate, has just announced that they're sending a fact-finding mission to the oceans of the world looking at, quote, the exploration, protection and exploitation of the seabed. What strategy for France? So you've got this parliamentary fact-finding mission starting to look at not only exploration and protection, but exploitation of the seabed. And uh, the senator for French Polynesia, a guy called Teva Rolfrich, um, who's uh, minister for the blue economy and the government of French Polynesia, is uh, uh, the rapporteur of this. So French Polynesia, with 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, their representative in the French Senate in Paris, is uh, the, the key rapporteur for this mission, looking at this, this question. And Rolfrich is an interesting guy. He... Uh, uh, last October, he wrote a major paper about uh, um, the oceans and uh, uh, the strategic interests in the oceans. And he said at the time, and I quote, with major geopolitical states at the heart of these coveted oceans, France must take its place. Thanks to its overseas territories, France has the second largest exclusive economic zone in the world after that of the United States. So on this question of the seabed, our country, therefore, has economic and strategic interests to preserve. Um, you know, it's pretty clear that, that uh, beyond the concern about uh, the sustainability of the oceans, questions of climate change, of uh, protecting marine biodiversity, fundamentally important questions for the future, France also has geopolitical and economic interests in its deployment in the Pacific. And I think we're going to see that in growing uh, terms in, uh, in uh, coming years. Have there been much reaction from the dependencies in the Pacific? Well, there's a lot of concern, um, uh, particularly in French Polynesia, where this issue has been on the agenda for a long time. Um, as we've talked about uh, in the past, French Polynesia, like New Caledonia, is what the UN calls a non-self-governing territory, or to use an old term, a colony. You know, the United States General Assembly in 2013 relisted French Polynesia on the list of non-self-governing territories and recognise France as the administering power of this dependency. You know, it's, it's very important to, to recognise that the UN General Assembly has recognised that not only land resources, mining, forestries and so on, but also ocean resources belong to the, the peoples of the territories, uh, not to the administering power, the colonial power. Um, so the UN General Assembly resolution says, and I quote, natural resources are the heritage of the peoples of the non-self-governing territories, including the indigenous populations. So you've had key uh, politicians in the independence movement in, in French Polynesia, in Tahiti, uh, like uh, Richard uh, Tiava, uh, Oscar Tamaru, uh, Moatai Brotherson, uh, highlighting the fact that these deep-sea resources in the vast exclusive economic zone belong to the people, the Maui people, the indigenous people of French Polynesia, not to France. But, you know, 
France is, is, is claiming sovereignty over the ocean. And, uh, for example, about five years ago, the then President uh, Francois Hollande, uh, predecessor to Emmanuel Macron, Hollande came to the Pacific and he said, um, we have to ensure that, that our presence in the Pacific so that no one can come and exploit the EEZ with our consent or authorization. It's our common heritage. It's yours, it's ours, and we share it. So France is saying, well, we share the resources, not just you Polynesians, but we French share the resources. Well, it's not quite right under international law. Under international law, they are the heritage of the peoples of the territories, including the indigenous populations. Um, that tension in international law is very much a part of this battle for the oceans. And there's a battle within the independent states of the Pacific as well. Some countries, particularly Nauru and Cook Islands, are very much in favour of seabed mining. Uh, these are poorer states with small populations, and they see uh, that collaboration with transnational corporations who are interested in this are a, a way of guaranteeing economic uh, opportunities into the future. Other countries are, are fiercely opposed to uh, this rush to exploit ocean uh, resources without uh, environmental protections. So Fiji, for example, has uh, declared a moratorium on seabed mining in its own uh, uh, waters and has called for a region-wide moratorium on seabed mining. So there's a tussle going on within organisations like the uh, the Pacific Community, the Secretariat of the Pacific Community, like the Pacific Islands Forum over this new frontier of ocean exploration. So a lot of the governments are saying, oh, no, no, we're just focusing on research. We have to know the oceans better. We have to protect the oceans through research. And that's true. And there's enormous need for research around, say, climate change impacts on marine biodiversity, on reef ecology, and so on. But you're seeing private interests moving into this area um, and there's a, a level of greenwashing where uh, some of this is related to strategic uh, interests such as the deployment of submarines through deep ocean areas and mapping the ocean floor for strategic and military purposes. And a lot of it is around these commercial exploitations, around fisheries, around seabed minerals, uh, around rare earths particularly, which are important for everything from phones to uh, other computer technologies and uh, microchips and indeed the patenting of life forms in, in the oceans. Um, you have pharmaceutical companies very interested in uh, research because of the potential to find compounds which may have pharmaceutical benefits into the future. Once again, important uh, areas of marine research, but there are real concerns about who controls the patenting of these life forms and who benefits from the, the research and potentially uh, uh, patenting of uh, the findings from the reefs, uh, reefs that have been managed and sustained by Indigenous peoples uh, for, for many years. And also, Nick, when you're talking about deep sea mining, it really is deep, isn't it? Yeah, look, the, there have been work for decades on the technologies to um, get material off the bottom of the oceans, um, it hasn't been viable, though, at commercial levels, and a lot of the research that's going on is about making uh, commercial the opportunity. You know, there's been a lot of work uh, done on mapping the clarion cryptidin fracture, which is a major deep ocean trench in the central Pacific, which is enormous resources of seabed minerals. There's been a lot of work for decades about 
exploring and mapping that area with different corporations and countries staking out areas for exploration and potential exploitation. But it's the commercial viability of this operation. And one of the problems is on a global scale, as we're chewing up uh, resources that are easily accessible, people have to go further and further afield to find um, these deep ocean resources. And we're talking, as you say, seriously deep uh, depths, uh, changes the technologies. And you see this in many parts of the world, not just in the French dependencies. Uh, the United States has been pushing deeper and deeper uh, out into the Gulf of Mexico, um, having soaked up most of the, uh, uh, the oil and gas reserves closer to shore, they're now exploring into much deeper waters, seeking to maintain uh, resource independence because of concern over uh, Middle East uh, competition and, and uh, the complexities of getting oil out of the Middle East. Um, we see that in Australia. Australia's had a number of petroleum provinces, as they're dubbed, uh, deep sea uh, oil reserves and gas reserves, uh, particularly off the coast of Western Australia, northwest uh, shelf and so on, the Bass Strait for many years. I grew up in Gippsland and Barry's Beach was the, the outlet for people to travel out to the uh, oil and gas rigs through the Bass Strait. But there's a push to move into other areas such as deep sea exploration of the, uh, the Bight off uh, South Australia and indeed in the deep sea waters between Queensland and New Caledonia. Australia collaborated with uh, Geoscience Australia, our technical agency, government technical agency, collaborated with ExtraPlac, which is a French uh, program for deep sea exploration. More than a decade ago, this work began in the Kappel and Faust basins. These are deep, deep ocean basins located between uh, Queensland and New Caledonia, uh, which is about 1,500 kilometres. Uh, it's in international waters between... Uh, uh, so outside the exclusive economic zone of, of both countries. But there's a lot of interest in deep-sea hydrocarbons, uh, particularly oil and gas, uh, in that area. And uh, that's because, you know, over time there's a concern that the uh, the oil provinces that we've had off Western Australia and the Basco, uh, Bass Strait and so on um, will dry up. You know, you see that with Scotland, the debate over North Sea oil and whether Scottish independence, who will control the oil um, that's off Scotland's coast. This is a, a growing international trend that the, the oceans are seen as a frontier for natural resources and uh, countries are staking out that. And this is one of the drivers for France to try and control their colonial presence in the Pacific simply because, you know, there's 7 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone that France claims sovereignty over. One more reason why they don't want... Um those countries to have independence. Indeed, and that's one of the, the debates, say, in New Caledonia. Um, we talked in the program many times about the independence struggle in New Caledonia, the referendum that was held in December last year and boycotted by the independence movement. As an example of this uh, oceans debate, France and neighbouring Vanuatu are at loggerheads and have been for decades over two small uninhabited islands uh, known as Matthew and Hunter, which are located to the south of New Caledonia and Vanuatu. Geographically, they're part of the, the Vanuatu archipelago, which you, and Vanuatu, people will know, used to be a, a French and British colony together called the Condominium. Both France and Britain claimed uh, colonial rights in New Caledonia, which only gained its independence in 1980. On independence... Vanuatu claimed these southern islands 
um, saying that they were part of uh, Vanuatu. France, however, um, says, no, no, they're part of New Caledonia, uh, which is, uh, as we know, a French dependency. And so there's a battle over this. Um, once again, two small uninhabited outcrops in the middle of nowhere, but by some perspectives, but with 200-mile exclusive economic zones around them, they're enormously important, particularly for fisheries. And so both Vanuatu and France have deployed teams to go out and plant a flag on them or uh, claim them. Um, and there's been a, a, an ongoing dispute, indeed, where there are negotiations between the two countries uh, to try and resolve this unresolved maritime border and clarify who has rights over these, uh, these islands. And so the stakes are pretty high. It's not simply a matter of glory or planting the flag. It's a matter of the potential in the 21st century for technologies to develop that will allow greater exploitation of ocean resources. And as I say, there are some, you know, mechanisms available, but they're not commercially viable. And so you've got the French state under President Macron announcing 2 billion euros worth of research by 2030 for the oceans and out of space. And, and they're not throwing that sort of money at it from, you know, French taxpayers uh, without thinking that there'll be some medium-term benefits to come for these enormous uh, resources that come from our oceans, which, of course, are the common heritage of humanity. Maybe not benefits for the local people, though, Nick, when you think back to the Nautilus plan development off the coast of PNG, the the local people were very fearful that their local cultural habitats and fishing would be would be greatly disrupted by well they don't even know what what is it could happen what absolutely could, absolutely there, there's enormous concern across the pacific in civil society groups with the pacific conference of churches and its member churches across the region about seabed mining Many of the uh, civil society groups, such as the Pacific Network on Globalization um, and other uh, other networks, are saying not just that they want a moratorium on seabed mining, but they want a ban, ban on seabed mining. They don't want it to go ahead anywhere. And in Papua New Guinea, as you say, PNG was the first cab off the rank trying to get a, a project going with uh, deep uh, sea exploration and then potentially uh, through this company Nautilus, uh, seabed mining, uh, civil society groups, church groups in Papua New Guinea mounted a, a major campaign to uh, press the government against this and indeed for economic reasons as much as political the uh, uh, the company uh, collapsed and, uh, and the project uh, halted, but halted for how long? And, and you see quite a lot of mobilisation uh, from uh, community groups uh, uh, worrying particularly about environmental impacts, but also about the control of these resources. You know, there's a great concern that, um, as has been seen on land with mining projects right across Melanesia, um, that the benefits of mining um, often go to transnational corporations and uh, overseas investors rather than to local communities. And so you've got this resource curse across the Pacific where there are significant mineral and uh, uh, forestry, fisheries, resources, but there's been a battle for, firstly, revenues and royalties to flow to locals, but more importantly, free prior and informed consent from landowners, water owners, resource owners. People want to look at mining if 
they want to look at ocean exploration resources, then there needs to be free, prior and informed consent so that people know both the costs and the benefits. And this has been one of the battles that we've seen everywhere from the Freeport mine in West Papua to the Panguna mine in Bougainville, which was the heart of the war in Bougainville during the 1990s. Across the region, indigenous peoples are saying that uh, while they're not 100% opposed to, to all resource exploitation, there are questions about who benefits from that And secondly, do people know the costs as well as the benefits? This is now being played out with Ocean's policy. The Pacific Islands Forum has what they call their blue Pacific agenda. There's a recognition, and people talk a lot about the blue-green economy tapping into the oceans. And there's enormous potential around areas like renewable energy, uh, wave power, uh, protecting the reef ecology for the benefit of humanity for the future. Um, and those really important areas, so no one's saying that there shouldn't be work done in terms of research and engagement with the oceans, but uh, who drives this agenda? And I think behind a lot of the, the greenwashing that goes on at these global summits, you have to look at the, uh, uh, the work that's being done for the exploitation of marine resources, and that's a, a serious issue that's going to continue as uh, major powers, the United States, China, France, Britain and others, compete for influence in the region that's been dubbed the Indo-Pacific. And if things go wrong, such as a ruptured pipeline or something like that, who pays the price for that? Now, people in the Pacific are very aware of that because, you know, when people talk about let's use the oceans for research, the Pacific's been a laboratory for various things in the past, and particularly, say, nuclear testing. The French nuclear test sites are in French Polynesia was known as the CEP, Centre d'Experimentation du Pacifique, the Pacific Testing Centre, the Pacific Experimentation Centre. You know, so the Pacific is seen as this vast empty space uh, suitable for um, activities like the testing of nuclear weapons because there's very low populations there. And so for 50 years, you know, France, Britain, the United Kingdom, the United States tested more than 320 nuclear weapons across the Pacific. People are living with the radioactive consequences, uh, the health and environmental impacts of uh, those decades of testing. Increasingly, uh, not just in terms of resources, but there's a lot of talk about climate geoengineering. Um, And once again, there's a great concern in the Pacific that while people are desperately engaged in the the push to to limit uh, greenhouse gas emissions and so on, uh, there's a concern that... um, if governments continue to fail to act on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, there'll be a need to draw down carbon from the atmosphere, and that term geoengineering is used for uh, possible schemes that could be used for carbon uh, withdrawal from the atmosphere. Once again, there's a concern that the Pacific will be used as the laboratory for geoengineering, and if there are adverse effects from the techniques that are used, like cloud seeding and uh, other, other techniques that are being debated, the Pacific will bear the brunt environmentally. So whether it's seabed mining, nuclear legacies, geoengineering for climate or other areas, small but significant populations spread across this vast ocean landscape are claiming that they don't want to be the guinea pigs once again for Western countries and particularly uh, major emerging economies like China and India and so on at a time that those countries are refusing to engage in the actions around environmental protection 
climate action and, and so on that are necessary for all of humanity. Thanks once again, Nick, and we'll keep an eye on this one in the next months and see what happens. Thanks, Jan. Look forward to speaking again soon. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Big changes are taking place in Latin America in recent months, which could be followed by the largest company, Brazil, in a few months later, and then Bolivia. But now the focus is on Chile, where on December the 19th, Gabriel Boric Front of the left-wing approved Dignity Coalition aged 35, won the presidential election to become the country's youngest president ever. This is a country where neoliberalism was born and his victory is seen by some as heralding the end of the brutal Pinochet era in Chile. But how and why has this happened and what are the prospects that it could be realised? I'm speaking with Fred Fuentes, author and activist. Fred, it's acknowledged that the Pinochet era officially ended in 1990. It wasn't until 2006 that students took to the street in large numbers. You could ask why did it take 16 years for protests to take place on the streets. Is that correct or were there rumblings prior to 2006? There were some things that occurred, but, but no, 2006 was, was kind of like very much seen as like finally the long shadow of the dictatorship was sort of starting to, to recede. And hence why Chile was always basically, uh, presented internationally as like the kind of the, the miracle economy. You know, like everyone was so, it was so good an economy, everyone was happy. That's why, you know, while the rest of Latin America had protests, Chile was the, the good neighbor who, who no one was protesting. So like I said, there was things that did happen. That was, it's an exaggeration to present it like that, but, it was really the student protest that sort of was the first signs of, of something changing, of, of protest uh, re-emerging in Chile. And what did they want? In terms of the student protest in, in, in 2006, uh, we essentially at that point it was, it was high school students. So high school students really taken out to the streets to defend their rights. They became, they sort of galvanised the whole country. You know, it was finally, you know, it was, it was really in many ways not just a kind of a a return on a large scale of street protests, but the first signs of a whole generational change in Chilean society. Uh, as I said, these high school students, so they were people who were not born during the times of the dictatorship, most of them largely born after the fall of, of the Pinochet dictatorship, so have no living memory of that period, uh, but who just, you know, having lived in this sort of grey period in Chilean history uh, where the shadow of the Pinochet regime still loomed large, where the, the country was presented as this sort of uh, symbol of how neoliberalism could work, they, they sort of fractured that sort of consensus. 
um, and really then triggered off a, a whole range of protests. And, and throughout that protest, you see how it is this new generation of activists, of left actors, progressive activists, of left leaders has emerged because five years later or several, several years later, it's those same generation of students who then lead the university protests against university fees sweep elections in the university student bodies, take control of the, the federation of university students, and who then go on to play you know, increasingly important roles uh, in street protests, in the formation of new political parties like the Broad Front, which was a key part of the, the coalition that recently won the presidential elections in Chile. So, you know, looking back, you, you see how those protests not just shattered the stifling, suffocating consensus that existed in Chilean politics, but really gave birth to a whole new generation of political leaders, uh, and in this case, progressive political leaders. But are you saying that at that time they didn't get a great deal of support from other sectors of society? I would say that certainly in that earlier period, what they had was passive support. Certainly, you know, there were groups that would join in and stuff, but it was by and large, it was those students who were the ones on the streets and where an important section of society looked on with admiration, uh, with hope that perhaps these protests could lead to some bigger change. But at that point, still really weren't coming out onto the streets. Uh, so you, you didn't see, for instance, a lot of those protests then broaden out to take in other issues or, or even the emergence of other parallel movements, certainly not on that scale. I, I would say that definitively, like that fracture point where this moves beyond just this new generation of young political activists to a broad scale, uh, is really with the rebellion that happens in 2017. And that, that's a rebellion that gets kicked off by a rise in, in the hikes, in a uh, hike in uh, the price of uh, fares for trains. But really, as you know, some of the key slogans of, of that protest lead us to, to, to understand these protests, it became much more than that. So, you know, the slogans like, look, this isn't about 30 pesos, the rise in, in, in the transport fare. This is about, you know, 30 years. You know, this is, you know, talking about all, the, all of this neoliberal period. So finally, you know, that's when I think really the protest uh, galvanises and, and broadens out its support beyond just this new young generation to sweep in other, other sections of society. And, and it's, that, it's at that point where Chilean society finally feels, hang on, you know, a, a change can happen. We, we can break with the bipartisan politics that had absolutely dominated Chilean politics after the Pinochet dictatorship to the, the, the bipartisanship we see here in Australia, with, you know, Liberal Labor, there, there you had the Christian Democrats and, and, and the Socialist Party, but governments came and went, but the policies policies remained the same. Uh, but 2017, I think, is where that real fracture point happens. That, that's when, beyond the young uh, activists, it's other sections of society come out onto the streets and, and really help to explain what's happened since, um, which is you know, not just, and I'm sure we'll get into this in detail, but not just the recent election of the first left-wing president in Chile since Salvador Allende, the one who was overthrown by the Pinochet dictatorship, but also the, a, a, refer, a successful referendum to convene a constituent assembly to uh, rewrite the, the constitution that the Pinochet dictatorship left behind at this legacy and to move towards democratising Chilean society through this process of, of a new constitution. And of course it left behind a society with unjust laws and dreadful inequalities for the people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Chile, particularly in, say, the 90s, 
uh, and early 2000s was presented in the region and internationally as like the model. Now, of course, part of that dates back to because, you know, in some ways Chile was literally the experimental model for, for neoliberalism. It's, you know, arguably perhaps the first country where neoliberal policies get implemented on such a, you know, on such a brutal and tense scale. And of course, that was only possible because of the Pinochet dictatorship. But throughout the 90s and, and, and the 2000s, you, you know, you have this, this huge, you know, well, obviously, a consensus that you know underneath the surface was you know discontent was there, but that didn't express itself in protest. It didn't express itself in the ballot box. You know, perhaps it expressed itself in abstention. So you saw large sections of society, you know, just just withdraw from politics. But while you know you had important indigenous movements in Bolivia, in neighbouring Bolivia and Peru, and you had uprisings against IMF imposed packages in Argentina, Chile just sort of seemed to have this peaceful stability that was sold around the world as, you know, this showed that neoliberalism could work. But I think, you know, as I said, 2017 was the definitive shattering of that. But predates that with the student protest, but it's really that the rebellion of 2017 marks a kind of, a, a kind of before and after. Of course, we don't know where this after will lead to. It may be closed off. It may go in all sorts of different directions, but there's a general sense in Chilean society that, you know, what what existed before can't go on. And something needs to replace it. And now the battle is what to replace it with, and that that finds its expression not just in the progressive movements that I've talked about in the election of a left wing president in the constituent assembly, but also in the important vote for you know essentially a far right candidate, a, a you know a, a person who was closely linked to and continues to uh, speak in favour of the Pinochet dictatorship, who you know, mustn't be forgotten came first in the first round of the elections and achieved, uh, from memory, about 45% of the vote in, in the second round. So lost by a fair margin, but 45% is, is still a pretty pretty important segment of society that will rally behind a, a very hard line, hard on crime, hard on women's rights, pro the, the history of the, the legacy of, of the dictatorship campaign. But you still have a brutal police and military? That hasn't changed. I mean... The new left-wing government under Gabriel Boric has made some symbolic changes, and, and you know, symbolic changes can sometimes be very symbolic, but others can have very broader ramifications. And in this case, you know, the, the new Minister of Defence is uh, the granddaughter of, of Allende, you know, of Salvador Allende, who was overthrown by that, that same military. So that you know, that sends a very powerful signal of, of what is expected. But fundamentally, that, that military hasn't really changed the police haven't really changed. It's that same police that were repressing protesters throughout this period. It's that same police, the same, the same uh, organs of security that have continually repressed uh, the Mapuche people, particularly in the, in the south of Chile, as they fight to defend their lands against forest companies and illegal mining. Those are big challenges that uh, left-wing forces in, in Chile are going to continue to have to confront. Just how significant are those indigenous struggles to what's happening today? I think they've played a, a really important role. You know, I, I don't want to exaggerate it. As I said, I, I, you know, I think if we want to understand Chilean politics, that those student protests and the 2017 rebellion, you know, is crucial. But, but I also don't want to underestimate the importance of, of the Puche struggle, which predates that. In fact, it's perhaps, you know, if we wanted to talk about, well, you know, what were some of the most powerful protests but before that, it was, it was the Mapuche struggles. They, they have continued throughout that. And as a result of that, have faced some of the harshest repression, you know, continually having 
uh, activists disappeared, imprisoned, you know, on hunger strike because of being held in solitary confinement in inhumane conditions. And I think, you know, certainly the, the infusion of that politics is expressed in this newfound search for a, for a different Chile. So, for example, the head of the Constituent Assembly is a, is a Mapuche woman. And the Mapuche flag has become a very strong symbol associated uh, with these protests. Equally, from the other side, the, the right wing continues to, and particularly the far right, to demonise the Mapuche movement, to demonise any links uh, with these movements that, that you know, decrying them as terrorists, and so therefore anyone who links with them as terrorist sympathisers shows of the sort of uh, importance that, that those struggles have in, in, in Chilean politics today, and will no doubt be a, a very, very tense point moving forward as well. And women have a new voice. Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, one can define these as just symbolic changes, but I think they go beyond just symbolism in the fact that we have, for instance, in, in today's, in Boric's new cabinet, a majority of women. I think off the top of my head, I think it's 14 women and 10 men in that cabinet. Arguably, two of the most important positions in that cabinet have been given to women as well, the Minister of the Interior and government's, a government spokesperson. So what we see if we look at this whole generational dynamic um, that's been occurring in, in Chilean politics, not just the rise of a new generation of activists, but in particular a rise of women activists and women activists from sort of poorer working class areas. And that expresses itself not just at the top level, for example, Boric's name in, in the cabinet, but we saw that only uh, last year or the year before um, in the municipal and regional elections where important mayoralties were won by young women candidates. Uh, we saw that in the elections for the Constituent Assembly where, again, young women activists were a large bulk of the sort of candidates that, that were elected to the Constituent Assembly. So very much the combination of young, predominantly women, predominantly those who come from working class areas who have are rooted in long-term local campaigning in those areas that have started to basically capture uh, positions all throughout the Chileans from, from the municipal government all the way up to, you know, um, the, the president's, you know, inner circle in, in the cabinet. Looking at the economy, which the new government has to deal with, I'd imagine there are lots of, um, or ha always have been, foreign extractive companies in Chile. Yeah, which, I mean, Chile, one of, one of its main industries is copper. That's, you know, and, and increasingly in more recent times in the north, uh, other mining for, for lithium, uh, things like that. So this, this is obviously going to be an important issue. Now, the, the Boric government, both well, Boric in his campaign and since his election, has made clear that he believes that, you know, the, these resources need to be used for the national interest. Now, of course, one thing is saying that, another thing is doing that. We've seen how time and time again when governments have tried to exert state control over these resources, in particular where they've gone up against uh, big corporate interests, they've, they've had to do that you know, and hasn't, haven't been able to do that without a fight. That will be the case uh, as well in Chile. On the one hand, Boric though does, does have a strong mandate. On the other hand, he faces a lot of institutional barriers. For example, given the results in the first round election, uh, he doesn't have a majority uh, in Congress. So any types of laws that need to be passed are going to have to be done building coalitions with other parties. Being able to do that will also mean having to work with, on the one hand, the movements that have been on the streets, say, telling that the people that, look, it's not enough to have 
protested and voted for me, we need to continue to keep up that street pressure because it's only by those protests that we'll be able to congeal these coalitions because these, these are coalitions that include you know, even members of the traditional parties that have ruled before, like the Socialist Party. So it's going to be very difficult to form those alliances. And it's also going to require working closely with the new with the Constituent Assembly, which has a very different composition. Its election saw um, much more uh, a whole layer of independent candidates, in most cases progressive candidates, uh, environmentalists, indigenous activists, women's activists, student activists. Uh, you know, so you know by and large, at least and by composition, what what is a more radical body, although it has a different mandate. But it, you know, it is also going to be discussing, debating what goes into this new constitution, and we've seen how that's played an important role in countries like Bolivia and Venezuela, of constitutionalising uh, the right of the state to have control over these natural resources. So that's the kind of balancing act that Boric's going to have to do. On, on the moderating, moderating side, he's got the composition of the Congress and even to a certain extent his cabinet. So as part of having to show his willingness to build alliance while maintaining key spots, uh, and in particular the inner circle spots for close allies of his, one sort of signal that he sent of wanting to work uh, with others is to uh, appoint a former central bank uh, representative as his minister of finance and someone who's worked previously with, with the Socialist Party, you know, the sort of centre-left centre or centre-socialist um, so, um, party government as, as his minister of finance. You have that on, on one hand, and on the other hand you have the, the street protests of, of the last few years and the Constituent Assembly who can hopefully provide a, a sort of a, a counterweight, a, a more radical counterweight uh, to those moderating tendencies uh, in, in Congress and to a lesser extent in, in his cabinet. But the people must want social change pretty urgently to try and reduce the inequalities. Well, there's certainly an important section of society that want that, but also people want stability. People want, as I said, this sort of new era has been opened up, but there's still an uncertainty where it's going. And so you see it, the, the counter reaction to that, as I said, in very you know, alarming vote for, for the far right. We're not talking about just like the equivalent of a vote for the Liberal Party. But in fact, the Liberal Party's vote or the equivalent of the Liberal Party's vote, the Christian Democrats just, just, you know, um, just collapsed in Chile. Uh, and in, in fact, it, you know, it was this sort of far right figure that was able to mobilise also millions of, millions of Chileans on this sort of thing of like, look, basically Chile's become a chaos there's crime, there's, you know, economic issues, you know, we need to deal with this with a, with a sort of a, a law and order, a, a, hard, a harsh regime. There's those countervailing tendencies uh, in, in Chilean society. But I think what we do know is that there has been a, a majority expression of desire for fixing up the problems of the neoliberal era. These are not uh, unique to Chile because we've seen in the last couple of decades and even just in the last year other progressive candidates winning in the region whether that be in Bolivia, in Argentina, in, in Peru last, last year as well, possibly later this year in Colombia and Brazil. The ability to work with those other governments as well, to create the conditions to help challenge the, or undermine or overturn the inequality that, that Chilean society has faced for, for the last few decades will, will also be an important factor. The difficulty is that, you know, on the one hand, all of these challenges that the government faces, but often people they're not interested in hearing about the challenges. They want immediate change. And so that's, that's what I think is going to be really important for the Boric government to see at least how in the first 100 days, in the first three, four months of government, it can start to show decisively how, how it is going in a certain direction 
even if not all of the changes are implemented in that time, that people, including those who didn't vote for him, get a sense of, OK, well, he, here is a government that knows what it's doing and, and he's going to continue down this path. It you know, has a project for where to take Chile in this current situation. And in the background, you have the US with a close watch on what's happening in South America. I don't think that Chile would necessarily be their, their high priority. The Biden administration has sort of, in particular, wanted to focus on, you know, uh, what it's defined, the axis of evil, uh, essentially Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. And, of course, they're, they're very firmly going to have their eyes set on elections in Colombia and Brazil. Colombia, because strategically it's played a really important role for the U.S. in the region, you know, are likened often to a, a kind of a, an Israel of the South America um, in the sense that it's always been, if not the, you know, certainly one of the closest allies, a huge, a huge destin, uh, destination for U.S. funding, in particular military funding. So you know, they're going to have very much their eyes set on Colombia and also on Brazil, given its size and its importance uh, in the region, where we've had you know, a, a Trump ally in the form of Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro in the presidency, uh, but where there's a high likelihood that we'll see a return to power of, of the Workers' Party under Lula, who certainly was willing to disagree back then with the Obama administration, where it felt that it had different interests, um, that um, uh, competing interests to those of the U.S., in the region. So I think perhaps one thing that might shield Chile a little bit is that our focus might be on those other countries more so than exactly on what happens in Chile in, in the next few months. Premature to usher in the end of the Pinochet era? It always feels like it's, you know, people say stuff like that and then it turns around to, to get them. So I don't know if I'd go as far as to say it's dead and buried, but certainly the, 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 the corpse is pretty cold. Uh, you know, the, the diagnosis seems to be that, that it has died. What is unclear is what exactly it's going to be replaced with. That's really the challenge. You know, we, we saw that after Pinochet, we had its dark, sh- dark shadow hanging over this period of neoliberal consensus, this grey sort of period in, in Chilean history. That's sort of come to an end. What will replace it? For now, you know, progressive side of politics has the upper hand. They've got... The street rebellions, the student protests of 2006, 2011, 2017 street rebellion, the constituent assembly that's rewriting the constitution. It's got a presidency and a cabinet that's largely made up, comprised of, of progressive figures. But it's also got, as I said, a, a congress that has conservative figures that could form a majority to work against the government. And it's got a, an important base that continue to support not, not just the traditional right, but now even the far right forces. So. It's going to be a complex situation, I think, moving forward, and, and let's hope that it is the, the final death of, of, of the Pinochet regime. I, you know, I think the, the signs are, are, all, are all positive in, in that regard. The question is, you know, as I said, what is going to replace that long shadow? I think it's, it's yet to be, be, be fully defined. But the new leaders have use on their side? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if anything, I mean, I think Chile in some ways is, is like, you know, obviously I don't know, politics in every country but in some ways it seems like it's one of the only countries that seems to be actually being able to manage a generational change in in its you know what you know could broadly define as its political class i mean if you look at most of the uh other countries in the world it's i I think the word is a gentriocracy you know like it's it's you know it's increasingly it's people in their 60s 70s in the u.s biden trump you know both in their 70s uh, most other countries, it's very hard to find a, a world leader under the age of 50. More than half of, if I remember correctly, of, of Boric's cabinet uh, is under the age of 40. 
is literally unprecedented. As I said, it's, it's been replicated not just at the national level but at the local level. So in that sense, that, that, that's something to be very hopeful for. That This is, is such a profound change. It really is not just a political change but a real generational change in Chilean politics. That's something positive to look for. And I think to, to look at the lessons of that, to see how it is that, you know, in a context where, you know, I think this is true of every country, not just Chile, where there's just so much discontent uh, with the status quo, so much discontent uh, with the traditional parties, with the, you know, with the political classes as, as a whole. You know, the fact that new, young, fresh faces, in particular uh, women, uh, in particular people from who have done work in their communities for, for a number of years, that you know, come to basically replace these old, you know, just you know, totally overnight, you know, just trounce these traditional parties and start to take positions of power is a, you know, one of the really positive aspects of what's occurring in Chile that provides hope that yeah, this, this change is something that hopefully is here to stay. Thanks once again, Fred. No, no worries. Thanks, Jane. Always great to talk to Fred Fuentes. Therese Virtue here from Music Sans Frontières. Subscribe to 3CR for music programs dominated by Australian artists, supporting Australian music making and lifting your day with glorious sound. 3CR is a membership-based organisation. We depend on our members' support. That's why we make it so easy to subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or go online to 3cr.org.au. Bowl is on now. The open air series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentermelbourne.com.au. 3CR supporter. On the 1st of February, Amnesty International released a damning 280-page report titled Apartheid Against Palestinians is a Cruel System of Domination and Crimes Against Humanity, highlighting the ongoing systematic oppression and domination of Palestinians by Israel and finding the crimes against humanity fit the international legal definition of apartheid. Through this acknowledgement, Amnesty joins a long list of other institutions and human rights organisations, international, Palestinian and Israeli, that have analysed and confirmed policies of successive Israeli governments constitute apartheid. I spoke at the weekend with the President of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, Bishop George Browning, and asked him first for the response by APAN to this damning report. The Amnesty International report on Israel uh, declaring it to be an apartheid state didn't really come as a surprise because that declaration has already been made by numerous other groups, including Human Rights Watch and and, uh, even one of the Israeli internal 
human rights organizations. Also, of course, it was, it was a claim made by uh, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu some years ago when he went to Palestine and, and saw what was happening there and compared it with what had happened in, um, in his own country of South Africa. APAN was not surprised by the declaration and also was not surprised by the pushback from the Zionist organizations which uh, wanted to dismiss it as being partisan, um, anti-Semitic, etc. Arguments which really hold no water at all. And uh, there can be no doubt at all that um, Israel is in enacting uh, policies which are racially based. What the Arabs are allowed to do and what the Jews are allowed to do are two different things. So that's racial discrimination. Under international law, uh, institutionalized racial discrimination is called apartheid. It isn't simply a word that's used for South Africa. It's a, it's a, a word that's now used to describe um, institutionalized uh, racial discrimination. It's a very big report, though, isn't it, George? 280 pages. It is a big report, and I can't say that I've read every word of it either. Um, but the message of it is very clear. Having had the report, as far as Australia is concerned, our Prime Minister has dismissed the report, which, again, is also not surprising because um, um, he uh, seems to want to support Israel no matter what it does. Labour, on the other hand, didn't dismiss the report, but went on to say correctly that... Um, declaring Israel an apartheid state has never been held by any international court. So one of the recommendations of APAN is that this claim be taken to the uh, to the Hague, to the International Human Rights Court in, in the Hague, in the same way that claims of um, war crimes have been taken to the Hague and are now being investigated. But the AI report does reiterate that the international community has an obligation to act. It does. Penny Wong correctly says, I mean, if, if, to be technically correct, the international community really only has a right and he has an obligation to respond um, when the declaration has been carried by an international court, which it hasn't so far. So... At, at this moment, that it is apartheid is the opinion of Bet Salam in uh, Israel. It is the opinion of Human Rights Watch. It's the, it's the opinion of Desmond Tutu, etc. Um, when it was, if it's carried by a court, then there is an obligation, and it's important that it be taken to the International Human Rights Court in, in the Hague. There is a report I read to say that the New York Times, a very influential newspaper in the United States actually sat on this news for two days before publishing it. That's probably so. Well, what is also interesting is that the, the Zionist propaganda machine was in operation before the report was published, so somehow or another uh, a copy of the report w um, was leaked or somehow got into um, the Zionist hands for them to be given <laughs> a heads up in terms of responding to it. And yet, as you said, they've got the human rights, the major human rights organisation in Israel, but also Gideon Levy and Mondo Weiss have mm. come out strongly in support of AI. Yeah, they have. And the left-leaning Israeli paper, Haaretz, 
constantly has um, articles in its paper. There was one this morning. I take, uh, I get the uh, the main leads from Haaretz every day. There was an article this morning which uh, confirmed that calling Israel apartheid state is a fair and accurate description of what's happening. How are we going to get Colin Rubenstein to come to the party? We're not. Colin Rubenstein clearly has significant influence both with the media and with the government. He, he, he seems to be able to get a, an article in the paper whenever he wants, and he certainly has influence with the Conservative government in Australia. But I think it's very important to distinguish between a propaganda which is put forward by people who have a Zionist political agenda and Jewish people generally, because it is not true that, that Jews generally uh, support this role of Israel. In fact, a number of Jewish voices post the uh, amnesty report have come out and condemned Israel as an apartheid state. But the, 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 the reality is, when I talk about Zionism, I'm talking about a political movement which is actually has as its aim the taking over of the whole of the historic lands, uh, which loosely we refer to Israel and Palestine. If there is an aim to take over all this land, then as night follows day, it means the displacement of those who live there ethnically. And so that's apartheid. You can't follow that agenda without it being an apartheid uh, strategy. Colin Rubenstein really has to understand that the policy of Israel wishing to annex most of what is Palestinian land is an apartheid idea or an apartheid strategy. Both Bennett, the present Prime Minister, and uh, Netanyahu, the previous Prime Minister, both of them have said that not one inch, not one inch of land will ever be ceded to an autonomous Palestinian state. The Australian Centre for International Justice maintains that Australia should not sign a free trade agreement with Israel and instead impose arms embargoes. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, indications are that free trade agreements don't mean much. Certainly our free trade agreement with China hasn't meant meant very much, has it? (laughs) And I doubt that the one that we've just written recently with, with Great Britain means very much. So I'm not that much worried about free trade agreements myself. But I've... um, advocated uh, to the relevant parliamentary committees that we should not be signing a free trade agreement which does not distinguish between the uh, trade which is generated within Israel itself and trade that is generated in the um, in the illegal settlements. I think inevitably if we have a free trade agreement with Israel it will include products that are produced in the, in the uh, illegal settlements. Part of my argument to the parliamentary committees is that we are ostensibly non-partisan in that we support a two-state solution. Therefore, we should not be doing anything that actually strengthens the hand of one against the other. And if we have a free free trade agreement with Israel that includes the industries in the in the uh, illegal settlements, then we clearly are entering an agreement which advantages. Israel and disadvantages Palestine. And so on that basis alone, we should not be entering it. In relation to the arms trade, we should have a, a, an embargo. The arms trade 
you, you know, I think, a little bit about my sister in Africa, Valerie, that they are in the midst of this terrible civil war, and Valerie says that the shells and the various armaments, pieces of armament trade that land in her area all have English writing on them. Were they produced in Britain? Were they produced in the United States of America? They, with English writing, presumably they weren't produced in Russia or China. And so Israel is is a, is a huge com- contributor to the to the world, the global arms trade. And um, those who benefit from arms uh, benefit out of other people's conflict and misery. And so if there is a free trade agreement, it absolutely must rule out any agreement in relation to arms trade. I think this has been attempted before to gauge the opinions of politicians as to Israel and Palestine. Yeah. There's more calls now for the the candidates to be asked the question, do you support? I think that that's a good thing to do, but realistically um, at the moment, Australian politics is involved is totally consumed with either the incompetence of the present government or the COVID or cost of living or perhaps Ukraine. So asking about Israel is an important thing to do, certainly from my perspective, um, but it, it can hardly be seen to be a major concern of politics uh, coming up to the next election. I'm just wondering about the United States, though, the impact of these um, reports on the general public in the United States. That's an interesting question, Jan, and I saw a, uh, the result of a poll recently, which was quite very surprising. It, it was a poll of, well, I'll go back one step. You and your listeners will know that uh, the conservative right in America is is reliant largely upon the vote of the of the evangelicals, and the evangelicals almost have had as a badge of identity support for Israel. A poll has been recently taken um, of young evangelicals in the United States of America, and the astonishing um, result of that poll is that support for Israel, supposedly among young evangelicals in America, has dropped from somewhere around about 60% down to a figure in the 30s, I think, for memory, was 37%. Now, that, that, and that's happened in the last five years. Now, there are probably a number of reasons for that, but the overriding reason given by the respondents to the poll was that they now see Israel as an aggressive nation, as, as a nation that is actually oppressing another people. And, uh, and that, that activity is anathema to people who hold uh, a Christian faith. So um, it may well be that the tide is turning more quickly than we imagined it might. And certainly in Australia, the boycotting, which affected nearly 40% of the performances at the Sydney um, Performing Arts Festival, I think that took everybody by surprise. And so it may well be that... uh, the tide of opinion is changing and Israel has only itself to blame for it because the reason for it is not anti-Semitism as they claim. It is anti-apartheid strategy which is um, causing so much suffering to, uh, to the indigenous people. And of course, George, the importance of getting through that barrier 
of the media's reluctancy to even seek an opinion on Palestine. In the last six months, I and other members of APAN have had meetings with the um, the heads of both the ABC and the SBS, and they have assured us that they are not opposed to that. Um, and we have had some good articles um, in both of those outlets. It, it's unlikely, I think, any time anytime soon that we will ever get any genuine exposure within the Murdoch press. And, of course, um, as everybody knows, the Murdoch press controls a con- uh, considerable percentage of the uh, written print media of Australia. After the amnesty report came out, Canberra Times, which is it's only the Canberra Times, but it printed a, a wonderful opinion piece from one of the uh, APAN members and also a few letters. So maybe things are changing, but I don't think they will with the Murdoch Press. Okay, thank you very much, George. You're very welcome. Yarra City Arts presents The Bandwagon, a new pop-up COVID-safe live entertainment venue at Condell Reserve this Sunday, February 20, from 6 to 8 p.m. Featuring punk rockers The Switches, who at age 13 will be playing their third public show, indie pop artist Ilka, who writes songs instead of getting therapy, and 16-year-old Cooper Jack, producer of Indie Pop Beats. For all Yarra Staycation events, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. And we continue with the recent history of Honduras in Latin America with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. We have to bring in Ronald Reagan and his cronies into what's happening, as you've been pointing out. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, as we know, Ronald Reagan was one of the most vile right-wing U.S. presidents, a long list of vile right-wing U.S. presidents. But he, in particular, you know, he really pushed for this interventionism in Central America. It was part of a wider shift in U.S. policy designs. Cold War was sort of drawing to its conclusion. I mean, of course, no one knew that the socialist bloc was going to disappear yet. But, you know, Reagan was beginning to shift his rhetoric towards this whole war on drugs that was sort of beginning to to take shape in Central America and further south in South America as well. You know, one of the big justifications, even before the Nicaraguan Revolution happened and then the Nicaraguan Civil War, was that the US was uh, supposedly concerned about increasing drug trafficking and drug production in Central America. And look, that was an issue, uh, but chiefly because the US was essentially bankrolling these corrupt regimes that were allowing it to take place. Uh, I mean, in Honduras... Honduras became a massive transit point and production centre for illegal drugs, even as early as the 1980s, uh, because a number of generals were actively taking part in the drug trade alongside their CIA advisors. I mean, it's well known now that the CIA did engage in drug trafficking or took advantage of the funds from drug trafficking in Central America to finance a lot of the war effort in Nicaragua particularly. There's a whole litany of scandals that emerged during this period. There's the Iran-Contra affair. There's all of the, you know, terrible, terrible instances of human rights abuses and torture and murder uh, that the US-trained and backed Contras undertake in Nicaragua. 
there's some really, really graphic examples. I mean, I won't dwell on them because they're quite terrible, but we do need to get an idea of just how horrific the U.S. role in Central America at the time was. I mean, you know, you had Contras killing children. You had them um, stringing up women and sort of mutilating their genital parts like for public display. There were some really, really horrific instances of torture from the U.S. back side in Nicaragua. And now, you know, as I said, there were a limited number of Honduran troops taking action in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas. It was chiefly, Honduras's role was chiefly logistical for the, for the duration of the conflict. It was, as I said, a supply camp, essentially, for uh, the Contras and for the US forces. Uh, once again, this really, this really showed that Honduras has, uh, at least for the vast majority of the 20th century, has not been a sovereign country. I mean, not even, you know, neighbouring El Salvador and Costa Rica did the sort of stuff Honduras did for the United States during the Nicaraguan Civil War. Um, and they were both right-wing governments as well. So this really just gives us an indication of how compromised Honduras's government is and their institutions are, right through to the highest levels of the Supreme Court. You know, they aided and abetted the military regime. They were paid off um, a lot of the time by the fruit companies or directly by the US government. So, you know, it was a totally corrupted country. Um, and as I said, you know, the fact that they were willing to do this to Nicaragua, which had normally had reasonable relations with Honduras for most of the 20th century, it really speaks to a very, very tragic, tragic chapter. And of course, you know, it doesn't end after the, the Nicaraguan Civil War finishes. Sadly, what happens in Nicaragua is we have such devastation in the country. Ultimately, the Sandinistas do end up driving the U.S. out. It becomes too costly for uh, the U.S. to commit these troops to the war. Um, but Reagan gets what he wants, and the CIA get what they want. There's, there's essentially an election in Nicaragua in the 1990s, which is heavily sort of managed and controlled by the so-called international community, and the Sandinistas end up losing, um, in large part because the US threatens to head back in and, you know, start another conflict if the Sandinistas win the election. That was actually an explicit threat that was made against Nicaragua. So, you know, of course, heaps of people, even the Sandinistas at the time, were saying, vote for the right-wing opposition because otherwise we're going to get invaded again. It ended up working out for them. Of course, the Sandinistas reclaimed power in 2006. During that time of the 1990s, once um, we sort of enter that new decade, the National Party comes to dominate politics in Honduras again, so the more right-wing conservative party. And they go the way of a number of Latin American countries, and they impose IMF austerity packages on the country. By this point, uh, Honduras is already a thoroughly neoliberal I mean, you know, most of their social services are bankrupt by this point anyway. Uh, but what little uh, access there was to healthcare and education becomes even more difficult to access for most families, particularly in the totally impover impoverished and totally underdeveloped rural areas of Honduras. And this, this situation persists until the early 2000s, as it does in a number of Latin American countries. And then what we have is the pink tide arrives in Honduras, you know, that turn to the left that takes place across Latin America in the early 2000s, that rejection of the Washington-imposed neoliberal sort of economic order, uh, it arrives in Honduras. At first, uh, it's not really clear that this was going to be the case. So in 2006, uh, Honduras has elections 
and Manuel Celaya, working on behalf of the Liberal Party, uh, is elected into the top post. He becomes the president of Honduras. Zelaya's credentials, if you look at them on paper, would not indicate that he's going to be a progressive leader. He actually comes from a very wealthy family in Honduras that has a lot of timber and cattle interests. Uh, his father actually ended up going to jail for uh, a number of corrupt sort of uh, money laundering operations using his businesses. Uh, but Zelaya himself was widely seen to be a very sort of uh, honest person. He had a lot of personal integrity. He himself was not really interested in the business uh, operations of his father. Uh, and he, you know, he never had a corruption to his name prior in his private business, uh, in his workplace, uh, nothing of the sort. And he ends up coming to power on a, you know, a reasonably sort of moderate platform. You know, he says he's going to increase social spending a little bit. Uh, you know, he wants to fight corruption, but it doesn't sound like anything too, you know, radical or extreme. Um, but once he gets into power, he begins instituting a sweeping range of reforms. They really transform Honduras. He's easily been the most transformative leader that the country has had in its history. Um, so, you know, he begins, you know, providing subsidies to small farmers, to the campesinos, so that they can actually begin to create a sort of self-sustaining and productive little farm for themselves and their families. He provides free school meals for, uh, for all Honduran children. Uh, domestic workers, which are chiefly women, are actually admitted into the social security system for the first time, which is a massive deal. And, you know, a number of Latin American countries uh, now are starting to experiment with this to actually provide a wage for domestic workers or a sort of social security payment for domestic female workers. Uh, but he did this in 2006. Uh, he reduced poverty by 10% in just two years, and he provided free utilities, so electricity, gas, water, to 200,000 of the poorest Hondurans. Some quite impressive changes, um, and they, they are, in a way, structural. You know, they are sort of beginning to pick away at the neoliberal systems that have been dominating Honduras. He's also a fierce critic of Honduras' media, which is still almost totally privatised, and they launched a massive, um, you know, typical Red Scare campaign against him. And he was calling for the press to be nationalised because it's similar, the, the levels of sort of uh, bizarreness of some of the claims in the Honduran media are akin to what we get in News Corp here in Australia, um, you know, on issues here such as climate change. Um, over there, when Manuel Celaya was in power, you had some really bizarre and outlandish claims about him. People were insinuating that, he, uh, the press, I should say, was insinuating that he was installed by Cuba and Venezuela, that he was trying to turn Honduras into some sort of communist dystopia. Um, you know, all sorts of typical Red Scare stuff that that really sort of belongs in the 1950s, 1960s, but they were dredging it up in the early 2000s. And, of course, you know, Manuel Celaya was a very close ally of Cuba and Venezuela. He had a very good personal relationship with Hugo Chavez and um, Fidel Castro, uh, and he joined the ALBA alliance, so the left-wing alliance of um, Latin American countries. He signed Honduras up. He got Cuban doctors uh, and Venezuelan oil, chiefly in exchange for food, so for fruit and for cattle that he sent across to Cuba and to Venezuela and to Nicaragua and to all of these countries. But, of course, he soon finds himself sort of clashing with the powers that be in Honduras. Now, of course, Honduras' constitution and their legal system stipulate that a president can only sit one term. That's it. 
Uh, and this was designed in large part to actually, you know, to prevent a, any sort of abuse of power in the early years of independence. It was actually a well-intentioned clause in the Honduran constitution. But at this time, it wasn't a very useful thing to have in Honduras because, of course, after Zelaya disappeared, there was every chance. And, you know, in fact, it was most likely that all of his progressive reforms would be paired back again, as has happened in the past in Honduras. And so what he says is he wants to put a constitutional change uh, into a referendum of the Honduran people to abolish these term limits so that he can run for election again and essentially continue with this progressive program that he was implementing. Now, look, most Honduran people were more than happy for Zelaya to run for a second term. And in fact, this is what worried the elite in Honduras because they knew that if they allowed him to run again, he would win again and he would keep on chipping away at the neoliberal institutions in the country. So first, there's an attempted, I guess, legal sort of um, attempt to stymie this referendum. So Zelaya puts it to the Congress, and before it can even get voted on, the Supreme Court uh, nullifies this bill. They say it's illegal, uh, it goes against the Constitution, all of these sorts of uh, justifications. And now we need to keep in mind that this is the same Supreme Court that essentially validated the military regime in the 1960s and aided and abetted all of the torture and the show trials, the kangaroo courts, all throughout that um, nearly 20 years, you know, in Honduras's history. And, you know, this is the same Supreme Court that also aided and abetted the governments that were passing laws to assist in the war against the Nicaraguan socialists during the, uh, the civil war in Nicaragua. So this is not some pure you know, uncorrupted institution that's sort of like fighting back against Manuel Zelaya. These are institutional roadblocks to Zelaya's plan. They, they are deliberately trying everything they can to stop Zelaya from getting his second term uh, or from getting the referendum up, I should say. But what Zelaya does, he says, well, screw you guys. I'm just going to take the referendum to the people regardless. We're going to organise it with our party and we're going to hold the referendum. So they, you know, they go as far as, as um, printing out the ballots and everything, and then the military comes in and confiscates the ballots, and they, they hold them all in the central military base in the capital, the Gusigalpa. Um, and Zelaya ends up actually calling for his followers to try and storm the military base to reclaim the ballots, but it doesn't really work. Um, I mean, you know, the military uh, have a very sort of strong hold uh, in these facilities and it wasn't it wasn't ever going to be possible for them to sort of break in and take the ballots back. Um, but, you know, he doesn't sort of give up. Zelaya insists that they will find a way to hold this referendum. And that's what really scares the elite now because, you know, they've tried twice to sort of knock him back and he's still going. He's very, very determined to turn Honduras around and change Honduras's fortunes. What we have then is plan C by this point, and that's the last ditch attempt to stop Zelaya's project. And what that is, is a military coup. So June 28, 2009, at about 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, armed soldiers enter Zelaya's home. Uh, he's in his pyjamas. He's, he's sort of escorted out in a military van, taken to an airstrip in the middle of nowhere, and exiled to Costa Rica. But anyone can do anything. When the, Honduran, the rest of the Honduran populace awakes to that news, uh, the military has said that they're taking over, that um, Zelaya has supposedly resigned, and that there's going to be a transitional period where the military will be running uh, affairs in Honduras. 
you know, everyone in Honduras sees this for the coup that it is. You know, it becomes very, very widely known very quickly that uh, Zelaya has been taken against his will and essentially exiled from the country. And we have all of these social movements, unions begin mobilising against the military regime. The military in response, I mean, undertakes a really savage repression. In the months following this coup d'etat, uh, we have about 200 people being killed in the streets. And again, those are the numbers that, that were able to be reported. Um, so, you know, the number could well be uh, much, much higher. And in the aftermath, you know, the military uses this unrest, this social explosion as an excuse to say, OK, it's not a transitional period anymore. The military is just going to run things until we can get supposedly get Honduras back in order. You know, internationally, most countries see this for the coup it is and they denounce it. Brazil in particular, under Lula and the Workers' Party, uh, leads a coalition of 20 Latin American countries and they all say that they will not recognise the Honduran coup. They will not recognise the military and that Manuel Zelaya needs to be returned to power, uh, which is a pretty powerful thing. I mean, the fact that so many Latin American countries sort of stood in solidarity with Manuel Zelaya is, you know, says something about the integrity of, of his leadership and, and, you know, the fact that he was clearly genuine about improving his country and improving his country's relations with left-wing Latin American countries. But of course, even these 20 countries together cannot stand against the one country, the United States, saying that yes, the military coup was necessary because Manuel Zelaya was threatening, you know, the institutional order, he was threatening the constitution's integrity, which is all rubbish, as we know. Um, but the US essentially gives legitimacy to this coup government, and they say that Manuel Zelaya shouldn't be allowed to return to the country. I mean, it is so blatant that the US was uh, organising or helping to organise this military coup. I mean, you know, we know that Hillary Clinton uh, had arrived in Honduras a few months before the coup uh, and was in discussion with military generals, members of the National Party about what we didn't know. But now, I, you know, in hindsight, it's quite clear what she was discussing. The US has always been heavily involved in Honduras. USAID has been operating there for decades. Uh, the Peace Corps... Uh, was operating in Honduras uh, before it was operating in any other Latin American country. Um, and the National Endowment for Democracy, too, is a big financier of the National Party and the Liberal Party when it's not being run by progressives. Isn't Honduras also the headquarters of the U.S. Southern Command? Yes, that's correct. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. does direct all of its operations. In fact, I, I actually think the main Southern Command base is still in Miami, in Florida. But in terms of their regional presence, you're absolutely right that um, Honduras has the largest US military presence apart from Colombia. But I would say proportional to, you know, to population and to the size of the army in Honduras, that the US presence there is disproportionate. You, you can really see that in the way that the country has developed, you know, in the decade or so after the coup, uh, in 2009, I mean, over 50% of all Honduran imports and exports dependent on the United States than it's, you know, arguably than it's ever been in its history. Again, that really, really does speak to the fact that Honduras is still fighting to reclaim its sovereignty. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's still just a US military base. That's all this country is at this point. There are still interests with, you know, the fruit companies or Chiquita, particularly the, the former United Fruit Company and, and that sort of thing. But it's not even about economics anymore at this point in the case of Honduras, because 
the U.S. has destroyed Honduras's economy. It's um, you know, it, it hasn't achieved growth for over a decade because of the military coup. Um, it's a totally depressed environment. During COVID, for example, 500,000 Hondurans uh, lost their job. Uh, 50,000 businesses went under because there's just no support whatsoever for anyone. It is really neoliberalism on steroids. Yeah, it's just a strategic like holding place at this point for the U.S. Uh, for U.S. military and geostrategic interests. Uh, in Latin America, and particularly in Central America and the Caribbean as well. It, it, clearly, Honduras hasn't really progressed that much beyond what it was during the, the Nicaraguan Civil War, which was, as I said, a launching pad for US operations. Sasha, before we go on to talk about the most recent elections and the actual election of Zayela's wife, mm. we talk about the environment movement, particularly... Kaping and the brutal assassination of Berta Kakaris and the impact of that murder and other murders on the whole region. Yeah, I, I was going to say I'm really glad you, um, you mentioned this because it's really become a key battleground and it's gained, as you say, a, quite a lot of publicity uh, around the world, not just in the Americas, not just in the States, but around the world. Because, of course, Central America, uh, I mean, has bountiful natural resources, particularly when we're talking about, you know, forestry-related goods, um, plants, foodstuffs. It is a really potentially productive and fertile region. But this has also, of course, attracted uh, the interest of a lot of corporations that are just interested in exploiting, exploiting, exploiting these countries. And as we said, you know, most of these countries are are thoroughly neoliberal, and Honduras particularly, there's very few checks and balances to make sure that these corporations are actually, you know, protecting the environment or their local workforce uh, in these areas. Uh, and, you know, it's been widely documented that uh, Central America, Honduras particularly, is the most dangerous place in the world for environmental activists at the moment. It is the most dangerous place. If you're trying to defend your land, be it indigenous land or some sort of uh, communally owned land in Honduras, there's a high chance that you'll be intimidated or physically attacked or even killed. Each year, there are dozens of reported cases of environmental activists being killed in Honduras and, of course, in a number of other Central American countries. You know, we don't often get to the root reason as to why these individuals are killed. You know, it's sort of just reported that, oh, you know, this, in, this activist was killed. They don't discuss who killed them, why they were killed, um, you know, what was the interest in the land that they were defending or, what, you know, what were they even doing before they were murdered. And, of course, what it comes down to is whenever there are these activists, you know, trying to raise awareness or defend uh, their land rights or the natural environment, corporations in these countries, in these you know, it's, it's essentially a bit of a no-man's land, a bit of a wild west, really, when we think about it. They are happy to hire mercenaries or hire private security to harass and kill these activists just so that they can get their land or their resources that they're after, uh, exploit them, and, and then leave without, without any sort of fuss. This is a widely practiced custom among corporations, particularly in Latin America. I mean, Coca-Cola hired mercenaries in Colombia to do this, uh, to harass union activists and kill uh, people who were trying to unionise Coca-Cola factory workers. And in Honduras, environmental activists are the main targets of these corporate mercenaries. And that's what they are. It might sound a bit sort of outlandish or sort of spy novel-esque, but that is actually what they are. 
these corporations are hiring assassins to kill people. And this is what happened with Berta Cáceres. She was defending her land and in particular um, a number of waterways and a waterfall as well uh, against a damming project in Honduras, which was going to uh, provide a lot of money for the company concerned, but it was going to have absolutely devastating consequences for the natural environment in that area. Um, and Berta Cáceres, she was an indigenous activist. I mean, that was her traditional land and her community's land. And she became the face of this movement. You know, even before her her tragic, tragic and, you know, disgusting murder at the hands of some corporate mercenaries, she was a very high-profile figure. You know, people were reporting on her solidarity activism and her activities in Honduras. But, of course, she became a victim of this, of this whole neoliberal uh, economic system. She ended up being murdered. You know, two people came into her house and just shot her. Uh, and then they left. Simple as that. You know, people actually were interviewed uh, about the killing itself, you know, because it was in a town. It was in broad daylight. And people were saying, you know, we heard the gunshots and that was that. And then these two men left. You know, it is not an exaggeration to say it's a Wild West type scenario out in these remote areas. I mean, because the government is complicit in what these corporations do. They're not going to enforce any sort of uh, legislation that exists. And the corporations will do whatever they need to to silence these critics and to silence any opposition to their projects and their potentially sort of lucrative returns that they get. It is really tragic because it has only intensified recently. There's you know, there's little sign that it's going to, to stop anytime soon unless the government in Honduras takes any sort of decisive action. This new government may well do that. I suspect they will try their best. But um, it's been a long time. It's been 15 years since Zelaya was in power. Corporations are accustomed to this way of doing things, uh, and they're accustomed to getting what they want. We'll see if, if there's any ground that's able to be made in this sort of fight, this environmental battle. Well, let's talk about Ziamara Castro. What's her background, apart from the fact that she is the wife of the former president. Xiomara Castador is a really interesting woman. Um, so as you said, she is the wife of the former president, Manuel Celaya, the, the very, very progressive left leader. Prior to, to being involved in politics, she, uh, you know, she was born in a rural town, not to a poor family, but also not to a, a wealthy family either. You could call her sort of middle of the road, I suppose. Um, she married Manuel Celaya when she was quite young, her first sort of taste of politics was um, around women's activism. So she was involved at first in a few local women's movements um, at the local sort of women's club. She organised women around sort of domestic violence related things on a very sort of small level. Once Manuel Celaya got involved in politics, he began sort of beginning his, his presidential campaign as well in the early 2000s. She became quite a visible political figure. Now, she never held a, a Senate seat or anything like that, um, but she was very articulate. Uh, she spoke to crowds with her husband. She was always with him. Sometimes she would even go out on her own and advocate for the Liberal Party at the time. A very sort of independent, forward-thinking woman throughout this time. And of course, when the coup did happen, um, so as I said, she didn't hold any official post in Zelaya's government, but you know, as I said, she was a sort of prominent advocate for his policies and for his projects. But once the coup happened and Celaya was forced to leave the country, Xiomara Castro became the main sort of focal point for the opposition. She sort of became the new face of the opposition. And in 2011, she actually 
was in large part responsible for founding the Libre Party. That was, I suppose, a, co a coalition of all of those progressive radical left-wing forces that had supported Zelaya, and they created their own new party called Libre, or Libertad y Refundación, uh, so Liberty and Refoundation. Um, and of course, the aim was to free the country, reclaim sovereignty, uh, and refound the basis of Honduras, refound the social basis, the economic basis, and all of these sorts of things. And, you know, she never left Honduras during this time. She was always, she was always on the campaign trail. She was a presidential candidate one time during the 20, I might be wrong, 2013 or 2014 election, which was heavily rigged by the military. And she was the opposition candidate for the Libre Party. Um, but of course, you know, she, she lost because the military was quite literally stuffing ballot boxes for the National Party. So there was little hope of her winning in a free and fair election anyway. But it does go to show that, you know, she was, she was very, very committed to this project that her husband had begun. That showed itself again in 2021, just last year, when the country held national elections again and Xiomara Castro was again the candidate of the opposition. Now, she made an alliance with the Liberal Party. She used to, of course, belong to the Liberal Party, but then created Libre. Um, but they agreed to both come together behind Xiomara Castro's candidacy, present a united front against the National Party and the military. This was a really remarkable election um, because people, uh, sort of commentators and observers, weren't sure whether or not the military would ensure that this was free and fair because, of course, they've rigged many, many elections in the past. So there was little reason to believe that they would not engage in some sort of underhanded activity with this one. You know, the economy had absolutely just collapsed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The president who was backed by the military, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was implicated in drug trafficking, as was his brother. The role of the military was becoming untenable and their grip on power was slipping a little. There was an increase in activism against the military regime. Tens of thousands of Hondurans uh, have left the country uh, in the massive caravans going to the United States. And the United States itself, I think, is act was actually somewhat concerned by these developments and perhaps realised that there needed to be some sort of legitimate election. Otherwise, you know, things could reach a revolutionary point. And what happens is Xiomara Castro wins 51% of the vote compared to 36% for the National Party. Now, it's entirely possible that there was a little bit of um, irregularity in these elections in favour of the National Party, but this was still a sweeping victory, you know, over 10% of the national vote, which is, which is a massive amount. So Xiomara Castro has a clear mandate to rule. She's made it very, very clear that she is going to re-engage in the project that her husband began. She's going to just dramatically expand funding for social services. She's going to reintroduce the free school meals um, and the social welfare payments for domestic workers and all of this sort of thing, uh, which were all removed during the military regime. And, you know, she's also planning on an international level. She's already re-established relations with Venezuela. Uh, they were severed after the military coup. The military regime cut ties with Venezuela, but she's now begun the relationship anew, which is really, really promising. Um, and she's also met with the Cuban ambassador. She's looking at getting Cuban doctors to return to Honduras. They were there in the Zelaya years. They were expelled by the military regime, but a few returned after there were some very severe floods in the mid-2010s. But again, a very, very small number, but Xiomara Castro wants to expand that again. And perhaps most importantly, 
from a global perspective, she has said she's going to stop recognising Taiwan. Uh, Honduras is one of just maybe 10 or so countries that actually recognise Taiwan as a country, and she's going to switch recognition to the People's Republic of China. This might seem like a small act. I mean, Honduras is a tiny country, but it has very big implications, particularly for the United States and their interests in Asia, of course, because the only countries that do recognise Taiwan at this point are either Pacific Islands that are heavily dependent on America, or they are Latin American countries that are heavily dependent on America. And, you know, bit by bit, these sort of outliers are coming back onto the mainstream bandwagon of recognising the, the People's Republic of China, which most countries do. This could have big implications. And overall, it is looking promising, I would say. There has been a bit of a hiccup, uh, though, and we do need to recognise this. There was a bit of a crisis in the Congress. So as a part of her power-sharing agreements, Yomara Castro is working with the Liberal Party, and she agreed that one of the Liberal Party's uh, senators would be installed as the Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the Congress. There was a general consensus, or it was thought that there was a general consensus about that issue before the election took place. However, what happened when the vote actually happened, when the vote actually occurred was that a group of lawmakers from Castro's own party defected to the National Party, to the right-wing party, and actually voted for a member of the National Party to become the Speaker of the Congress. Now, there was a deadlock. There weren't enough votes on either side to actually select a Speaker. Castro has expelled those traitors from the party. Again, widely suspected that they were uh, bribed into doing this, that they were compromised before the election took place. And there is a bit of a, a deadlock in Honduras' parliament or in their Congress. They're not struggling to pass laws, but they're wary of trying to pass laws without knowing who else could potentially be compromised in the ruling government or the government coalition. Because, you know, ordinarily they would have a majority, but now, you know, that these defections have taken place and there are likely others in the government, very difficult to say if that if that majority is going to still be there, you know, in the next couple of weeks or next couple of months. So we will have to see what happens there. Um, a lot of Hondurans who are following this, uh, you know, the, the poorer Hondurans are very, very upset. They're pretty outraged that this is being done, you know. Like, it's, it's been less than a few weeks since Castro became president, and the right wing and the military are already trying to totally sabotage her progressive project because, of course, she needs to be able to have trust in her um, congressman to be able to pass legislation that's going to restore all of these progressive social and economic policies. She's also having to tread a bit light on the Taiwan issue because she, of course, doesn't want to upset the United States, at least in these early days when, you know, anything could happen, as happened with Manuel Zelaya. Um, you know, she's acutely aware that she could face the same fate as her husband if, if she goes too hard, too fast. But, you know, she's already made small steps. Um, she did manage to pass a bill that restores a little bit of funding for public education and public health care. It's not as much as she wanted, but it's more than Honduras has had for at least a decade, you know, which is encouraging. Um, and as I said, you know, the Cuban doctors will be returning to Honduras soon. They're currently working out the contract, um, you know, to figure out exactly where the, the doctors will be, will be placed in the country and how all that's going to work. And, of course, Honduras is also uh, finally getting a good relationship back with Nicaragua uh, because, of course, you know, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua were very hostile to the military government after the coup in 2009. You know, there's really encouraging signs now that, you know, cross-border trade is beginning to increase. There's not as much tension between the two governments. There's definitely cause to be optimistic about uh, Xiomara Castro uh, and her government. 
we have to be practical about about this and we have to recognise that there is a mountain of challenges that she's facing. But, you know, I think at the very least, this election has has made sure that we can't go back to the way things were. The Honduran people won't allow it to go back to the way things were. And that in itself is a massive victory. And many thanks to Sesha Gillies-Lukakis, broadcaster, journalist and PhD candidate. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.